Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast. My name is Mandy Rhodes. I'm the editor of Hollywood Magazine. And joining me to discuss the week in politics is my award-winning writer, Liam Kirkcaldy. Join myself and Mandy, and the odd politician, of course, as we chew the political fat and spit it out on the pages of the forthcoming issue of Hollywood Magazine. I think the bit, the, obviously the, the big issue around this was that it appeared that inequality had basically been baked into the system. Maybe this is all part of his plan. First you become an assistant referee, then you become an MSP, then you move to the House of Commons, then you move back to the Scottish Parliament, and then you get your dairy herd. And the question is, will Mr Ross be able to make an impact on the public? Because, you know, I think probably at the moment, you know, 98% of people in Scotland, or at least living, those living outside of Murray, uh, would not know who he was, wouldn't recognise him, etc, etc. So he's got a big job. Basically, it's just my opportunity to say I had uh, I had no idea that we had a footballer in Scotland called uh, Ball in Goalie. So first up this week, we have Good Week, Bad Week. That's a regular part of the show where we talk about the changing fortunes of political players in Scotland and beyond. Mandy, I've got a fairly obvious answer, I think, for Bad Week this week. It's a bad week for John Swinney, the Education Secretary. Mm. Yeah, I mean, John Swinney obviously was facing calls for his resignation over the whole exams fiasco. I mean, this has obviously been an unprecedented year. There were no exams. I mean, I suppose one of the big... uh, questions in all of this is that people were tested or failed or passed exams that they'd never actually sat. Um, But we watched him in the chamber just now, um, and it's a pretty big climb down, U-turn, whatever you want to call it. But the Education Secretary has now said that all the awards um, that were assessed by teachers or by college lecturers, that did appear to give pupils um, much higher grades than might have been expected had they sat an exam, those awards will now stand. So um, people will now have the higher grades that they had been, would have been awarded by teachers before the moderation process that the SQA got involved in. Yeah, it was a a real nightmare for the Scottish government in the sense that you had quotes coming out from people saying that they'd failed exams that they'd never actually sat. Yeah, Um, exactly. It didn't look good at all. I mean, he he did, he came in with an apology um, in the in the statement today that follows Nicola Sturgeon apologising yesterday. Um, it was obviously an attempt to be as humble as possible, but as you say, there were calls for him to quit entirely. Mm, I think the, the, obviously the, the big issue around this was that it appeared that inequality had basically been baked into the system because once the, result, once the assessments had, been, had gone to the SQA and through the moderation process, pupils from less well-off areas saw their grades being downgraded by a much larger percentage than pupils from more affluent areas. And for you know, a, a government that sees its mission um, in closing the attainment gap and, and dealing with inequality, that was fairly damning, I suppose. Yeah, it's just, they've, they've had a lot of trouble with testing in general, haven't they? Um, yeah. With the Scottish government with this stuff. And I suppose that's about as bad as it's been for Swinney in the entire time I've probably covered Scottish politics, I would say. That's the most pressure I've seen him under. I mean, he's... Um... He's a very humble man. I think that came across. And I, I actually think it was a fairly, I'm not sure it's a tactic. It's just something that they ha- they've had to do to get through this. But when Ian Gray asked him to resign, um, Ian Gray, of course, a former teacher himself, um, 
Swinney said that he wouldn't be resigning because what he'd done was respond to the young people and he'd responded to what he thought young people wanted him to do, which was to fix the problem. So instead of playing to the politics and the politicians that were calling for his head, he's actually said, I'm playing to the young people who've protested. Um, and I suspect that is what young people want. They just want the solution. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, the, the Tories and Labour have both called for, for Swinney to go. I mean, I think that probably would be a bit more powerful if Labour didn't spend as much time calling for SNP politicians to resign as it as it does. You know, it is pretty yeah. common in general. But then the other bit to this is that there was a, a vote of no confidence tabled and it looked like he would probably lose it, especially once the Greens looked like they would probably have, have backed the Labour motion. Yeah, and that, that's been moved, I think, to Thursday now. Mm-hmm. Um, but clearly, um, I can't imagine why he wouldn't come through that now. No, I mean he, he did. He did seem to sort of deliver a lot of what the Greens asked for, anyway. So you can't imagine that they would. Um, I remember it would sound really, really stupid by the time this comes out. But you wouldn't imagine <laughs> they'd have acted. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with sounding stupid, Liam. <laughs> I mean, no, actually, <laughs> this week uh, my mother happened to dig out my old hire certificate from 1980, mm. uh, and. To be honest, Liam, I think everybody bumps up what they actually got. What are you, what, sorry, what are you saying here? <laughs> well, nothing. It, it's just a kind of hypothetical. Sorry, a hypothetical that you've liked about your exam results for years. I think we'll just move on to a good week, really. No, no, I want to hang on to this text. This is one of the most interesting discussions we've ever had on this podcast. Is this like when you claimed that you owned that flower shop? What I would say is, you can be anything you want to be, kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Well, you you know, it, it's a well. I was all I was going to say is it for all that um, you know, Swinney was getting a lot of grief, particularly obviously from um, the Tories. It's I think that this is just a precursor for what England will go through next week when the exam results are released. And Gavin Williamson, the Tory Education Secretary, will probably have been watching John Swinney and hoping he doesn't have to walk in those same shoes. Yeah, it's quite possible people are currently scrambling around trying to avoid this exact situation. I know. Yeah. So, in, oh yeah, t- keeping with the Tories then, good week. Mm-hmm. Um, Douglas Ross, um, a yeah. name that's appeared often on our podcast for various reasons. This is very much a Douglas Ross podcast now. It is really, uh, mainly to do with cows. Maybe that was the wrong angle. You talked in too much about cows and not about how he was going to become Scottish Tory leader. I know, I must have missed that one. So Douglas Ross in the last week has become the leader of the Scottish Conservative Party, um, taking over from Jackson Carlo. Uh, Now, I think probably the question in it all is, um, was Jackson Carlo pushed or did he jump? Mm -hmm. And I think we could probably safely say he was pushed. Yeah, I think Um, the, the most sensitive way of phrasing it was that he was shown internal polling, which suggested his position was untenable and he chose to leave. But I think that's something of a euphemism in politics sometimes. I think so. And I think there was also the telling meeting that, you know, Boris Johnson was in Scotland, went up to Douglas Ross's constituency where there were lots of picture opportunities. um, And then a week later, he becomes the leader. But we also understand that Ruth Davidson had gone up to Moray to meet with him. and persuaded him that he should be the leader. She's going to stand in for him as leader in the Scottish Parliament. So they're now branding themselves as co-leader. This is before, of course, she goes off to the House of Lords. So she's a temporary co-leader, though. Yeah, sort of, and a nearly ennobled one. Well, yeah, I understand that she's going into the Lords to reform it from the inside, like a kind of Trotskyist entryist. That's what you always do, isn't it? I mean, she's a great respecter of democracy, apart from when it comes to her new role. Maybe she's playing the long game, Andy. Maybe this is yeah. all. This has been years and years in the making. Do you think it's all been a long game? 
I think so. It could be. You don't know it's not. <laughs> I just worry about it. You know, this time last year, we were awarding Jackson Carlo MSP of the Year at our political awards. Mm. What does that say about us? Well, I mean, maybe there's a difference between being a good MSP and being a good party leader, and especially in the current context. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, watching the Clusturgeon's briefings, I find it very difficult to understand why anyone would want to be First Minister at the moment. It looks horrible. It looks yeah. like an absolutely terrible job to do. Well, of course, Douglas Ross is saying that he, well, first of all, he said he would be the leader of the opposition, which isn't the best way to go into an election campaign. No. Um, because although he will be leading the party from Westminster until May, um, he will be standing on the Highlands and Islands list in the May elections for the Scottish Parliament. Mm. And he'll be top of that list, so presumably he'll get in. Um, and he'll also continue to be an MP as well. And a football uh, linesman. He's still and, running and the someone that still craves to have his own dairy, dairy um, herd. Maybe this is all part of his plan. First you become an assistant referee, then you become an MSP, then you move to the House of Commons, then you move back to the Scottish Parliament, and then you get your dairy herd. Yeah. It sounds like a plan. It's the oldest story in the world, isn't it? (laughs) Well, don't milk it. (laughs) Sorry. Um, But obviously, when Boris Johnson was up visiting Douglas Ross, for whatever reason that was, he obviously um, enjoyed coming to Scotland because we hear he's now going to come here for his holidays. Yeah, I mean, you really have to hope he doesn't have COVID anymore. Oh, no. I wonder what that would do with the polls. (laughs) Yeah, Boris Johnson brings deadly virus to Scotland. That wouldn't play well. And actually, so actually, for this podcast, we've um, interviewed Professor John Curtis, the master of the polls. um, And he had lots to say, has lots to say about what the Tories can do to try and increase their chances um, in the elections for the Scottish Parliament in May. And interestingly, he kind of feels that they've reached a high water mark. Um, and what they need to do now to be more successful is to encourage people to vote Labour. Oh, that's very interesting. It'll be good to see Douglas Ross making that speech. Yeah. And clearly, um, the whole emphasis in Scotland from the Scottish, the, from the Conservative cabinet is they're worried about the union because mm. poll after poll is now showing independence at an all time high. And again, yeah. um, John has talked at length about the reasons behind that. So we're going to listen to that now. So, John, I, I can't actually remember a time when we didn't talk about Scottish politics and say, gosh, aren't we living in interesting times? But the last week seems to have just been even off the scale. Well, what, of course, has happened is that um, the UK government appears to not only to have acknowledged, but also appears to have accepted the evidence of, you know, what well, I know more than three or four opinion polls, but three or four opinion polls conducted during the course of the last quarter that have all put yes ahead. And indeed, if you look across all the polls conducted uh, in 2020 at the moment, on average, they point to a 51% yes vote. And this is the first time in Scottish polling history that we have had yes put ahead, albeit narrowly, over an extended period of time. And to that extent, at least, there now uh, seems to be a realisation and an acceptance. 
by the UK government and those on the union side of the argument that indeed uh, public support for the union now appears to be more fragile and weaker than it ever has been. Now, in truth, this is a story that's been a long time in view. For those of us who kept on banging on about their attitudes towards the Constitution during the course of last year, when, of course, minds were primarily concentrated on the various parliamentary manoeuvres um, uh, going on in, at Westminster and, of course, the change of prime minister. But actually, the evidence that support for the union has uh, fallen has actually been in evidence since April of last year, because if you take all of the polls that were conducted last year, on average, they showed 49% support for yes, i.e. that support for independence had finally gone up uh, in the wake of the uh, Brexit referendum in a way that previously, at least, had not obviously uh, been the case. And before that, what was also true, but again, nobody was terribly interested in, but actually was pretty important, certainly if you wanted to understand accurately what happened in the 2017 Westminster election north of the border, one of the, you know, one of the ironies of the 2014 Scottish independence referendum is you will well remember, Mandy, all those many hours that were spent on both sides of the argument talking about whether or not an independent Scotland would or would not be able to be a continuing member of the European Union. Well, it was one of those issues on which, frankly, the politicians could have saved their breath because actually there wasn't any relationship between people's attitudes towards the European Union and whether they voted yes or no in 2014. However, after the 2016 EU referendum, that relationship began to appear under the surface because there were, as many uh, nationalists uh, were anticipating, some people who had voted no in 2014, who voted remain in 2016, who um, were saying, well, hang on, if the UK is going to leave the European Union, then no, this is terrible, uh, and I would vote yes. But equally, what also happened is that there was a body of people who had voted yes and voted leave because around a third of the yes vote voted to leave. Not every nationalist accepted the SNP's vision of independence inside the European Union. And that vote moved some of it in the opposite direction. Net effect for a long time was zero. But actually, it was changing the structure of support for independence. It was causing the SNP difficulty. The principal reason why the SNP's vote fell in the 2017 Westminster election was not the row about Indy Ref 2. It was that the party was losing ground amongst the voters and wasn't gaining ground amongst Remain voters. But the point is that Brexit was actually changing the structure of support uh, for independence in Scotland. But then last year, what became clear is that whereas hitherto the net effect of those two movements had been zero, by tw in 2019, it became clear it was no longer zero. It was uh, rising uh, wholly amongst Remain voters. And that, ergo, whatever your views, whether you are, you might want to believe that Scotland is indissolubly part of the United Kingdom and that it is entirely democratic for Scotland to be expected to leave the European Union along with the rest of the UK because it's part of the UK. You can believe all that, but unfortunately, what you do also have to accept, it's very difficult to avoid the evidence that the pursuit of Brexit has undermined 
the support of your fellow citizens in Scotland for Scotland remaining part of the United Kingdom. And that is an issue that those on the unionist side of the argument, it's been obvious for quite some time, need to address. Um, and it's now, because of where the polls are now, evidently seeming more pressing. So, you know, beyond all the immediate excitement of the fact that all of a sudden the UK government has woken up to the fact that support for independence has gone down, has gone up, et cetera, et cetera, this is quite a long-running story, the seeds of which were sown four years ago. Now, interesting. I mean, there are various reasons that people put for that rise in independence happening. And I take on board everything you're saying about the seeds being sown much earlier. And we can come back to were there arguments made for the union and what will they be. But the, the various factors of Brexit, Boris, COVID, and perhaps the fact that many older people who voted no have are no longer with us, if you like. Um, yeah. Where would you place all those factors in terms of where we are? Well, okay. I mean, they're, they're not, of course, independent factors either, but let's yeah. come back to that. So, so point one is, yes, sure, it is true that... Um, uh, older people were much more likely to vote no in 2014 than, than younger people. Probably, you know, the, the population under 50, straight 55, there was probably a majority yes vote in 2014. But um, that's a relatively slow process, and it doesn't explain why all of a sudden in 2019 we get a higher level of support for independence than we did in 2018. So the speed of the change and the timing of the change doesn't match. That explanation, though, yes, of course, that is one of the things that may be going on uh, uh, underneath. Um, so far as the other things mentioned, well, we've already dealt with Brexit. Um, let's do so. The thing that's why this is a story not entirely about Brexit, uh, although it it probably was up to and including uh, Brexit Day. Uh, that's you know January this year. Is that if we look at the further increase in support for independence that's occurred this year? So, this is the polls moving from 49% support for independence last year, 50% maybe at the turn of the year, to the 52, 53% that on average the polls have been pointing to now. That increase has not occurred uniquely amongst Remain voters. It's evident amongst Leave voters as well as amongst Remain voters, which is why, therefore, it's difficult to argue that the most recent increase is attributable to Brexit. Now, at this point, one has to be upfront here, and I've, you know, I've written this elsewhere. At this point, the evidence becomes more circumstantial, although you might still want to regard it as quite compelling. And of course, it is, you know, what's been going on in the last quarter when there's been, there's been this further increase in support? Well, of course, it is coronavirus. And I think the first thing that we should acknowledge for those of us who have been following the story of devolution um, ever since 1999 is that arguably the last three months have been the most important in the history of devolution, not actually in Scotland, arguably across the whole of the United Kingdom. I mean, uh, because, of course, the truth is that the Scottish government has been making crucial life and death decisions about public health and about the health service and, of course, also about care homes um, that have a prominence and an importance and an impact on our everyday lives that far outweigh the, uh, the debates that we've had hitherto about free personal care and whether or not Scotland should have tuition fees and all those things that hitherto we've tended to talk about, about devolution making a difference. This 
This has put the Scottish government front and center in the lives of people in Scotland because under devolution, public health and health has been a devolved uh, responsibility. Um, now, I think you know, one of the consequences of this more broadly is that you know, people in England have suddenly learned that actually different decisions might be made in Scotland and in Wales and in Northern Ireland. And I think probably the awareness of devolution in England is now much greater than ever has been. But equally, coming back to north of the border, um, the, it's, it, given how important this issue is, people's views about how this issue is being handled kind of, you know, it's not unreasonable to anticipate that maybe actually these may also now factor into people's views about how Scotland should be governed. And of course, the truth is that although, as it were, the, the statistical record in Scotland, so far as uh, the prevalence of the virus is concerned, initially at least was very little different from that of England, same problems about care homes, same problems about, about PPE, it is the case more recently that uh, the prevalence has been rather lower. And in any event, what's long been evident is that people think that Nicola Sturgeon's doing a very good job at, at dealing with the coronavirus. Boris Johnson is regarded as doing a bad job. And actually, that's a perception that's there south of the border as well as north of the border. But crucially, it's a perception that isn't confined to the regular ranks of nationalist or yes supporters. It's to be found amongst those who voted leave and those who voted no. Now, it's not been a dramatic change. We've seen, what, 2 or 3% increase in support for independence, perhaps during the course of the coronavirus pandemic. It just happened, of course, because of the starting point. That takes us to a different uh, 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 side in the lead. But that, you know, it seems at least a, a pretty good, uh, a, a plausible, that probably a few people in Scotland who voted no and who voted leave have said, well, actually, you know what? There might be something to the nationalist argument that an independent Scotland might be able to govern itself a wee bit better because, um, you know, Nicholas doing brilliantly, Boris is doing badly. Now, um, Boris then, so Boris then in a sense is not independent because, of course, the reason why Boris matters is that, A, he is the principal cheerleader of the leave side. And the, 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 the electoral vote of the Conservative Party, including crucially in Scotland, is a leave vote. This is where all the talk about Ruth Davidson exaggerated. The, Ruth Davidson succeeded, achieved what she achieved in 2070, despite rather than because of her position on Brexit. She was simply picking up the leave vote that the party was picking up elsewhere. And um, that uh, the point, the trouble, therefore, at the end of the day, for Boris is that, yeah, sure, the one, in, the one third of people in Scotland who voted Leave might think he's rather good, but the trouble is, you know, these voters are relatively thin on the ground. So that's where Boris, Boris is part of Brexit, but Boris also, because of the perceptions of how things have been handled and the difference of perception handled, is also COVID. So it is Boris... Is he the biggest risk to the union at the moment? No, no, no. I think that that's to personalise things too much. Um, I, I, I put it slightly differently. I mean, the fact that Boris is uh, uh, is, is is the chief peer, uh, the chief cheerleader of Leave and also is rated badly to dealing with COVID doesn't make life for the unionist movement any easier. But that 
actually there was always a risk that the pursuit of Brexit may well have been undermining uh, the union. And if you think about the timing, insofar as the evidence that Brexit was indeed now resulting in more people switching to yes than opposite direction dates from the spring of 2019, it predates Boris becoming prime minister. How do they turn that around, John? Because clearly, I mean, today we've got Rishi Sunak in in Scotland. They're sending um, cabinet secretaries up and obviously they've got the argument that they also could put in place furlough. Yeah. But how... Does Boris, I'm not trying to personalise it, but he is the Prime Minister, how does he turn this around now? Is it by replacing Jackson Carlow and having somebody else as um, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives? Well, let's deal with the last point first. Um, It follows from my argument that the success of the Conservative Party in 2017 was primarily based on winning ground amongst Leave voters, that the stance and position adopted by the leader of the Scottish Conservative Party is not necessarily crucial. In other words, I think there has been the extent to which the success of the Conservatives in 2017 can be laid as credited to Ruth Davidson is all too easily exaggerated. She was actually benefiting from the fact that Leave voters were looking for a home to express their views, as were Leave voters across the UK as a whole. And therefore, um, they, switched, they, they switched to the um, Conservative Party, including, Gosh, by the way... John, do you, you it, don't it, think Ruth it, was it, the it, great saviour of the Scottish no, Conservatives? No, no, no I mean, I mean, it, it's a two-part story. Ruth Davidson can be credited with the success of the Conservative Party in the 2016 Holyrood election before the Brexit referendum, because there it is clear that the Conservative Party gained ground primarily by gaining ground amongst those who wish to defend the union. Although at the same time, at the end, I think it's also true that in 2016, there was a chance in 2016 for a while, according to the polls, that actually the Labour Party could have been seriously uh, uh, damaged uh, in the Hollywood election. In the end, however, the Labour Party... Uh, escaped intact in 2016. The Conservative Party became the predominant voice of unionism in Scotland, but it did not become the only voice of unionism in Scotland. And that's the reason why one of the crucial disadvantages that the unionist side has north of the border is that politically it is divided. Um, uh, you know, essentially between Conservative and Labour, with the Democrats also being there. Whereas the union, the nationalist movement in Scotland, although you know noises off within the SNP sometimes look as though they're doing their best to undermine this, but the, within the SNP, the SNP and the nationalist movement's great strength is that essentially it's represented by one political party with one clear vision for what. Uh, it thinks an independent Scotland um, uh, would deliver. So, um, so I think you know, 2016, yes, but in the end, it was a limited success. But in 2017, it's Brexit what drives the increase uh, in, in the uh, in, in the Conservative vote. And of course, at the you know, at the end of the day, you know, that is a a, a limited uh, phenomenon. So, point one, therefore, is that the leader of the Scottish Conservative Party doesn't necessarily have much impact on the party's appeal as they might as as uh, they might like the second thing that follows from all of this and this in a sense is 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 the paradox 
that now faces the Conservative Party north of the border and arguably faces Boris Johnson. Actually, if you look at the position of the Conservatives in the polls in Scotland at the moment for Holyrood, it's not bad. They're just a little bit, little bit below what they got in 2016. And probably, if they're a Hollywood election now, the Conservative Party would be more or less as strong as it is at the moment. The problem, however, is that the Labour Party is an awful lot weaker, and it is on, rests on the fact that the Labour Party is an awful lot weaker that opens up the opportunity for the SNP to get an overall majority. So arguably, the really difficult... Uh, strategic difficulty that faces the leader of the Scottish Conservative Party and faces Boris Johnson is that they badly need the Scottish Labour Party to revive between now and next May, because it may well be that on that, the chances of denying the SNP an overall majority rest. And certainly, you know, if you look at what happened in the 2019 election uh, north of the border, what was the SNP doing? It was uh, g getting back quite a lot uh, of the vote that he's lost to the to, to, to Labour Party in 2017. A lot of pe people are willing to swither between Labour and the SNP. Um, between a third and 40% of the Labour vote actually is in favour of independence. That's where the action probably is. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, because the Conservative Party in Scotland is basically milking a niche market of Leave voters, and that that market is not that big, there's a limit to what can, the Scottish Conservative Party on its own can achieve so far as trying to deny the SNP a majority is concerned. John, that's a fascinating uh, scenario that the, the Scottish Conservatives would probably need to campaign for Labour to win seats. Well, but this is the difficulty of the unions. So, you know, you know, so difficulty number one for the unions movement is that politically it is divided. Um, uh, that has implications for uh, in terms of their uh, potential ability to win seats. It also raises another fundamental question. Now, it's fine for Conservative UK ministers to come north of the border and fly the flag for the union. And it's sure, it's fine also for them to point out that indeed, be, you know, and this is to do with the division, of course, of responsibilities, that it's been the UK government that's been primarily responsible for providing the um, uh, fiscal underpinning to the handling of the pandemic uh, north of the border. Uh, that's not because the UK government is feeling particularly generous. That's just to do with the division of responsibilities under devolution. Now, of course, it, you know, we're all in North of the Border familiar with this argument. Of course, uh, we, we all, one can expect the unionist side, as they are, to argue that um, this goes to show how indeed that, um, you know, as part of the union, Scotland has access to a better safety net than will be available north of the border. Although, of course, we are beginning to come to a crunch, and Richie Sunak this morning was kind of laying this quite straight on the line. We are coming to the crunch where apparently the UK government is now determined to end an awful a lot of that economic underpinning. It may be wanting to under, to uh, uh, get rid of it rather more quickly than the UK government, the Scottish government would like, so far as his attempts to try and handle the public health crisis is concerned. And if at the end of the day, actually unemployment does rocket very highly in the winter um, in Scotland, it may well be that that argument won't work as well. And of course, as you would expect, those on the other side of the argument will simply say, well, actually, of course, the truth, if we were an independent country, we would have um, 
uh, run our own furlough scheme. And there I probably also look forward probably between now and next May to a fascinating debate as to whether or not it's big countries or small countries have handled coronavirus more effectively. And I guess if you're on the unionist side of the argument, you don't want to mention the words Brazil and the United States too often. And if you're on the independent side of the argument, you might just want to say New Zealand as repeatedly and as much as you would like. So, I mean, the point is that, um, you know, coronavirus will, uh, I mean, you know, one of the things that's true in all sorts of ways, and coronavirus is part of this, is that quite a lot has changed since 2014. Quite a lot of the arguments have moved on. The argument that, that the United Kingdom provides a stronger safety net is, a, is an argument from 2014. I'm sure if you're on the unionist side of the argument, um, you will believe that that is indeed the case. Actually, Scotland could not have coped as well. But shall we say, don't be surprised if that argument is challenged on the nationalist side. Uh, uh, using arguably evidence from elsewhere that happens to be congenial to their cause. It's interesting because there are so many arguments that were used in 2014 and beyond that really couldn't be used now or could certainly be shot down. I mean, one very simple one would be Ruth Davidson saying that she respects democracy and yet she's going to the House of Lords. Well, that, if I may say so, Mandy, is a rather personal argument. Uh, and I think, you know, what one actually has to acknowledge is you're, you're right. There are lots of ways in which the argument has moved on. Not all of them, by the way, um, in a direction that is favorable to the nationalist cause. So let's take a couple of those. Price of oil is a wee bit, a bit weaker now yeah. than it was back in 2014. Yeah. What if indeed the vision for an independent Scotland is to um, uh, be rejoin the European Union, to be part of the single market? What are we going to do about the border between Gretna and Berwick? You know, one of the things we've learned, if anything else, is about the difficulties of having single market borders on relatively small islands. And whereas in the end, the UK government has compromised in Ireland in order to ensure that the Irish border can remain open and is effectively keeping Northern Ireland inside the sing, uh, single market, you know, the, the logical equivalent on this side of the water would be for the rest of the United Kingdom to remain inside the single market, and that ain't going to happen. So, you know, that's another way in which things have moved on. And I think one of the things we, that we, we, we have to uh, acknowledge is that, frankly, the debate about independence has not been joined until, arguably, the UK government started to kick it off 10 days ago. Um, and the truth is that Nicola Sturgeon is still not terribly interested in engaging. Until we have the argument, until we see the extent to which you know, those arguments have moved on, and the extent to which this does or doesn't change people's views, you know, you know, arguably in a sense, you know, what's happened in the last year or so has happened in a bit of a vacuum, um, and you know, there is no guarantee as to what would happen um, uh, if and when um, uh, we do have that debate. And certainly, you know, the first thing anybody's going to tell you with opinion polls that put one side at fifty-two or fifty-three percent is that, frankly, it's a bit of a toss-up as to who would win. We're, 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 we're still a world away from the position where we say it is perfectly obvious that Scotland would vote for independence. What we can say, however, is that at this point in time, at least, the chances on the yes side, so long as the noise is off, do not get too loud, are actually better now than they ever have been in the whole history of the SNP. So before we even get to that point, we've got the election, as you say. Well, I mean, do you think the election will happen in May? 
Well, that of course is a, is a crucial point, and it will you know it depends on a lot of things. I mean, we're, you know, all elections in the UK, um, including local government by elections, have been abandoned until. Uh, uh, May of next year, and it's like a lot of things. I mean, a lot of things are in people's diaries for next year. And they're like, oh, I hope to God, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I, either there's been a vaccine or somebody's found uh, something that enables us all to get the uh, uh, antibody, antibodies via drugs, or you know, somebody finds a therapy that means that the risks are not so great. And you know, this is this is the big unknown. And as it were, you know, this is the point where I go. I'm not an epidemiologist, let alone uh, an expert on, on viruses. But you know, the noises off we're getting is that it might just be true that perhaps if we are not too unlucky, that one or other of these attempts will actually have succeeded, and that we might just have enough doses kicking around that maybe actually, for the time being at least, though not necessarily permanently, we might have got the, the uh, population sufficiently inoculated that actually we get the, the virus well and truly down, and therefore the election uh, can go on. Yeah, But equally, however, if that isn't true, and we do have a second serious spike um, uh, uh, in the winter, um, then um, we will... Um, there will be question marks. I think also that there will be a quite, I think, you know, at this point also, there'll probably be a lot of, I mean, electoral administrators in the UK, if they're wise, will be looking at the experience in the United States where it seems inconceivable that the election will be stopped. Uh, and, you know, there are, other, I mean, New Zealand is currently having um, an election, etc. There, there are places elsewhere that are trying to hold elections in the middle of the pandemic. And, you know, there may be lessons to be learned from there. But sure, there is, you know, given that, you know the elections, the English local elections were scrapped last uh, uh, the, uh, the May of this year. Sure, there is a bit of a, a question mark hanging over them, um, but I guess probably all sides would prefer them to happen if they possibly could. Right. Well, let's assume it will happen. But before then, we've got um, the fallout that's going to continue around the SQA uh, and the exam yeah. fiasco, if you like. Um, we've got two parliamentary inquiries into how the salmon uh, allegations and complaints were handled, and there'll be an inquiry around how the Scottish yeah. government have handled COVID. How do you think those things will impact? I mean, the SNP are so far ahead at the moment that you can't imagine it'll make a huge difference. And I guess people believed things like the salmon trial would make a difference, and it didn't. Well, um, okay, various things. I mean, uh, I mean, this of course is not the first time that we've had an SQA controversy, um, and no. in the end, it's not clear that the, the previous controversy did that much damage to the incumbent Labour administration. Um, but you know, um, this is clearly a, a, a difficult issue, and I. Uh, you know, the, the, it, it will need to be played, uh, played, uh, uh, play, played carefully. But you know, uh, the honest truth is probably uh, the SQA were damned if they did and damned if they didn't, uh, given that evidently um, uh, the uh, teachers in schools, which historically have not done so well, um, have marked their pupils uh, much more highly compared with um, what is the historical record now. And the difficulty, of course, is, however, is that even if that judgment is correct in aggregate, that still leaves open the possibility of individual injustice, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, but it's it, it and and whether or not this has all been done the right way, and clearly, the, the, the experience in Scotland is now caused the um, 
Ofqual in England, the equivalent body, to get a bit nervous about this and to begin to allow appeals um, uh, over the same issue. So, uh, but you know, a very, very difficult issue given that we decided decided to abandon the, the, the exam. Well, I, whether or not we will have any the results of an inquiry into the Scottish government's handling of COVID before May of next year, not sure. Um, uh, you know, the UK government is not moving. Is not looking to uh, get involved in such a, an inquiry uh, very quickly. I'm not sure whether Scotland would want to move more quickly than you can, whether it could, because a lot of the evidence that the Scottish government was relying on was, of course, coming from uh, uh, the UK government. Um, so uh, uh, now, the, the thing, of course, that is true is that you know the fallout from uh, the Alex Salmond affair um, and trial um, uh, is is going to go on, and that does seem to be. Uh, you know, clearly bound up with a debate within the SNP about whether or not it is sufficient to say we're going into this election saying we want a referendum, and if we get a majority, we should have a referendum um, because you know what do we do about what if Boris says no, and that therefore we need you know, and, and th- so there's there's a real debate going on. It's clearly you know there are clearly associations and networks etc. where those who are of the view that a plan beam is more than more important uh, happen to be those who are. Uh, friendly with Alex Salmon and who are have been critical of the way in which Nicola Sturgeon has been uh, handling the affair. Now, you know, at this point, you know, I think this, we're at this point where, where angels fear to tread, which is, you know, what do we or do we not uh, discover? I mean, evidently, we kind of know that probably Nicola Sturgeon was unwise in having met. Uh, uh, Alex summoned, um, uh, yet not declared the um, uh, interview uh, until some time after um, to her officials. But we don't know anything about whether or not uh, she had ever at any point did anything that either deliberate. I think we know. I mean, one, there are two claims I think kicking around in the wind. One is that she acted in such a way to try to protect him. Um, or, and the other claim is that actually, you know, she changed the rules in, and, and the rules were then, she then connived in uh, using those rules in order to try and, and, and the change in the rules that, um, that, that potentially caught him, um, that um, uh, it, deliberately in order to undermine him. Now, you know, these are both, you know, serious claims. They are opposite claims. Um, and the question is whether any of it is in any way conceivably true. So I think, you know, sure, um, you know, certainly it's kind of pretty clear that a mistake of procedure was made, but whether mistakes of substance was made, let alone, you know, anything else. And and there are clearly criticisms that have been weighed at the door of, um, you know, Leslie Evans, the chief civil servant, and, you know, she may or may not uh, survive the clear pressure. You know, who knows? And, and, and you know, the fact that Mr. Salmon won his court case over um, how well, this was handled, you know, clearly difficult. But I guess in the end, well, you know, so it depends on what falls out. None of us knows what falls out. We can kind of uh, understand what's going on. I think at the end of the day, the real question uh, is, you know, either in the wake of this and in the fact the other thing that's boiling along is whether the SNP can maintain its political unity on the independence question. And I guess, you know, a little bit of friendly advice 
to those. Um, I think I'd probably have a bit of friendly advice to those on both sides of the argument side, the SNP, neither of which, of course, I have any particular remit for. I think to the advice for those who are um, somewhat unhappy about Mr. Salmon's treatment and maybe f feel that maybe Ms. Sturgeon has some responsibility for it, um, perhaps should be aware that whatever is the truth of that argument, at the moment at least, it looks as though Nicola Sturgeon is the SNP's uh, principal asset. Equally, however, it's probably true that the advice to Nicola Sturgeon is going to be is that she's going to have to say something to those in her party about what the SNP would do if indeed the UK government simply says no. But she won't want to say too much because the more the SNP says, well, actually, we'll go off and do this anyway the more they let the um, uh, UK government off the hook. But at least privately, if not publicly, probably um, you know, it would be wise if an olive branch were put out about, look, you know, actually, I do have a plan B, but you know, there's a limit to what I can say. Because again, I think you know, the thing to realize about, about where we are is this, and this is where I think that the, the, the position of the UK government is potentially weak. And I heard this argument again this morning from Sir Craig Oliver, uh, former Theresa May. The, the argument, of course, that the UK government is using about holding another referendum is to say, well, look, hang on, you guys, the SNP, said five years ago that another referendum, this is a once-in-a-generation gener opportunity, and you should stick to that. Now, of course, we all know why the SNP said this. You know, as happens before any election, before any ballot, all politicians say this is desperately important. If you don't do this now, you'll never get a chance, etc., etc. Because, of course, the SNP were using it as a rallying cry to try to pee people to vote yes, not to give up the opportunity. All right. But, of course, they are potentially hoist by their own petard. And it's perfectly reasonable to argue that one's political opponents should keep their promises. The difficulty, however, that the UK government would face is if indeed the SNP, unlike in 2016, say unambiguously, we want another referendum full stop, and they get another overall majority. The, 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 the two issues will arise. Well, back in 2011, David Cameron accepted that indeed, under those circumstances, the SNP had the moral right to hold another referendum. So what's different? And the second arguably crucial argument is this. You can, uh, and this is something that came to me um, when uh, I was chairing a hustings during the Westminster election last year. And the question that came from the audience to the Conservative representative on the panel was, look, okay, fine, you don't want to have another referendum, but what is the evidence that you will accept that actually the public do want another referendum. And I think the difficulty here is that, yes, you can, yes, so we can argue that the SNP shouldn't change their minds, but the electorate cannot be bound by the promises made by the SNP. It is the right of voters to be fickle and to change their minds. And arguably, if in 2011, an SNP majority was accepted as evidence that voters in Scotland did want a referendum, 
then arguably the same argument will apply now. But of course, that argument will be stronger the less that Nicola Sturgeon says about Plan B. But that's not to deny that she doesn't need a Plan B, and that it may well be that she needs to persuade Joanna Cherry and Kenny McCaskill, and maybe even Alex Salmond, that she does have a Plan B. But it's maybe for, pri maybe for private consumption rather than public consumption. But I think their manifesto very clearly has to state that they want a second referendum, doesn't it? Full stop. And yeah. they expect the UK government to deliver one, right? Yeah. That, yeah. That, 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 that's a promise. Now, now, beyond that, we, you know, I mean, beyond that, I think, you know, I, mean, I think beyond this, I think, you know, I, and for those of you who've not been following this, uh, you know, I recommend reading the obscure, uh, but arguably very important um, uh, white papers that the minority SNP administration published between 2007 and 2011 about the bill, about the conditions under which a referendum might be held. And you may remember, Mandy, the wonderful convoluted question that they came up with as being a referendum question that might be capable of being asked by the Scottish Parliament yeah. on its own, which was, do you agree that the Scottish government should enter into negotiations over independence with the UK government with a view to Scotland becoming an independent country? And the argument was that that question would not be ultra-virus. So again, I think there's another confusion here we should sort out. There's a lot of talk about, well, look, if the, if the, if the Scottish Parliament hold a referendum without it, the UK government agreeing to it, we're into Catalonia. Not necessarily is the answer to that. Because it, when this debate was going on in 2007 to 2011 as to whether or not holding that such a referendum with such a question would or would not be ultra-virus. Shall we say that when you got two or three lawyers together, you got six or seven different opinions? And the point is, it would go through the courts. And some people at least think that maybe, actually, maybe the Sunday Court might say, well, actually, because this is simply a referendum that's asking the Scottish government to do something, and the Scottish government does have a locus vis-a-vis -vis talking to the UK government, this is fine. Now, of course, that would still leave out the difficult issue that if the UK government isn't willing to recognise the result of such a referendum, where do we go from there? But um, it may just be that the legal position upon which the UK government is relying in saying no might just not be quite as 100% secure as perhaps is thought. Oh, right, George. <laughs> I suppose the assumption of all of that is Douglas Ross probably isn't going to get the keys to Butte House anytime soon. Oh, well, look, I, know, here, here, I mean, herein lies a, a, another difficult for the Scottish Conservatives. Um, um, and I think one of the things should we, say, we should say about Douglas, we clearly should congratulate him on becoming leader of the Scottish Conservative Party. He is uh, not a well-kent face. And one of the things that will be absolutely crucial is whether or not he can demonstrate an ability simply to make an impression on the Scottish public. I mean, because give Ruth Davidson her due. Uh, people, actually quite a lot of people liked her and she definitely got the respect of quite a lot of people who didn't necessarily vote for the Conservative Party and crucially she got herself known, she made an impact people knew who she was the problem that although her success sounds quite ephemeral well, the, sorry, sorry her success, from what you've said. Well, well, well. Yeah, sure. It's not. Yeah, but the, but the point is, if if you, if people don't, if you if there's a 
at the end of the day, parties are dependent on leaders to get to 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 to, to get their message across. If you if people don't know who you are, you are you are struggling. Now, one of the Labour Party's problem is that you know Richard Leonard, even after now he's been leader for whatever it is two years, is is according to the most recent YouGov data, just before Jackson Carlow uh, uh, bit the dust, is even less well uh, known than Jackson Carlow yeah. was. Uh, so yeah, yeah, that gives the Labour Party a real problem. You know, and the question is, will Mr. Ross be able to make an impact on the public? Because you know, I think probably at the moment, you know, 98% of people in Scotland, or at least living, those living outside of Murray, uh, would not know who he was, wouldn't recognise him, et cetera, et cetera. So he's got a big job... Um, uh, uh, to do that, so we should certainly uh, we should certainly congratulate him on that. But of course, the difficulty about the Scottish Conservative Party faces and again, this comes back to the division within unionism. Um, if the Conservative Party does well, it might get something like the high twenty percent that it got in the 2017 uh, UK election. That seems to be pretty much. The high point, given that they're, they're basically trying to gain, uh, they're, they're, they're dependent on Leave voters, and given that you know there's still that isn't that much support for Leave north of the border, that probably will not be enough to make the Conservative Party the largest party. But the difficulty, in any event, is that the Conservatives are probably not coalitionable. Right. Who is going to be willing? And, and you, know, this is, you, know, you know, the one thing that the Labour Party has taken away from the 2014 independence referendum is: do not trust the Tories with a barge pole. It's why running a single unionist campaign in independence referendum is going to be very difficult. It's who is there on the unionist side of the argument that would be capable of running a campaign that might appeal. Uh, and be acceptable to those across all sides, which is one of the reasons why Rishi Sunak perhaps is coming north of the border, because he's the one popular Conservative minister that we have at the moment. The, the, the fundamental issue, but equally also, you know, uh, how will the how would the Conservative Party be able to sustain administration? And in a sense, Douglas Ross was being entirely honest when he said to people, "I'm hoping to uh, to lead a strong opposition in in Scotland." Because probably the, the the question that Scotland probably faces in May of next year is not whether or not the SNP remain in office or not; it is whether or not we get a majority or a minority SNP administration. But of course. That's a crucial question, because if we hit a minority SNP administration, even if uh, there is a majority for independence with the Greens, as there is at present, then um, it would be much easier for the UK government to say no. <laughs> or another independence party. <laughs> anyway... Uh, well, that's another whole story, of course. Um, <laughs> I, and we've we've only got nine months to think about it all. So, anyway, John, thanks very much for that. That was great. You're welcome. Okay, so it's time for the rant of the week. This is an opportunity for Mandy Rhodes to impersonate an old guy at a bar, uh, <laughs> trap you, <laughs> and tell you about all the things that she has a problem with in the world that maybe initially don't seem particularly political or even um, connected, <laughs> but later could be the an option for a politician to fix. Mandy, what have you got for us? Well, basically, it's just my opportunity to say I had, uh, I had no idea that we had a footballer in Scotland called uh, Ball in Goalie. I, I Which don't is a think fit. he is called that, Mandy. I think 
the issue you've got here is that you've taken a Celtic footballer, you've changed his name, and now you've decided it's a football fan. It just seems apt to me. But anyway, it's basically about footballers' behaviour. And um, I like the fact today at the COVID briefing, um, Nicola Sturgeon had to say that she couldn't get inside a footballer's head. Which, no, which is as hard as she might try. Because <laughs> what what <laughs> would you is, find in there is the well, important indeed. question. But this so the is, background to this is the is the Aberdeen players breaching lockdown rules or breaching restrictions, and then um, a Celtic footballer apparently flying to Spain, coming back without telling his club. Yeah. And then playing a game without having self quarantined. Yeah, exactly. And obviously, the issues in Aberdeen. Um, I'm not saying it's about all about footballers, but there were footballers spotted at the bars where certain uh, clusters of COVID have now happened. Mm. And I think the point that Nicola Sturgeon was making is that footballers, however much I may fight against this idea, can be role models for young people. And if they're mm-hmm. not behaving then their behaviour will get replicated by other young people. And that is where we're seeing the clusters, really, about young mm-hmm. people going to bars, not respecting any of the social distancing, etc. And it's also down to people that are running bars. I mean, there was such a huge lobby campaign to get the bars open. And yet, they're, you know, it's not really rocket science, is it? A few drinks in, you forget the social distancing. And you start singing football songs and things, mm-hmm. um, and the virus gets spread. Yeah, I think they're still showing football on silent in the hope that it will stop people from bellowing at the screens in the way that they, you know, they normally would. Yeah. I suppose that you know, in, the, in terms of the, the professional footballers, I mean, I do think they've got responsibility, but also, you know, there's a lot of people further down in that industry that rely on jobs mm-hmm. that that exist because they're able to play football. So if games get shut off, clubs further down aren't able to survive. They can't survive without crowds. You know, crowds are how they make money. Yeah. So what you suggest that people go along to football but don't shout or scream or sing? Well, I'm, show, I'm suggesting that they find a safe way to reopen it without footballers breaching the rules. Yeah. I mean, I would like to go to Spain myself, to be honest, but I haven't. Well, maybe politicians can do something about that then, Liam. So they say a week is a long time in politics, and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's Politically Speaking podcast. I hope we've enlightened and entertained, and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics, remember you know a podcast that can help them with that. If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also remember to check out our fortnightly release of Hollywood Magazine, available in print or online at hollywood.com. Bye for now.